This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If you were a mystery writer, I doubt you'd set the opening of your page-turning thriller at a dental conference. I don't recall bad PowerPoint presentations or stained lecture room chairs popping up on the pages of Agatha Christie or Dan Brown. But it was at a conference about the links between gum disease and diabetes where dentist Kristen Kern's life tilted on its axis. So at this conference, there were two keynote speakers. The first was representing the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, And she handed out a brochure, and I opened it up. It was all about decreased calories, decreased fat, decreased salt. But it didn't actually say the words decreased sugar, which I found very unusual. Kristen is puzzled. That seems awfully strange. It's a dental conference after all. Then the next keynote speaker steps up, a representative from the National Diabetes Education Program. This guy also hands out a brochure the stop-and-go fast food nutrition guide. If you've got to eat fast food, here are the healthy options. And I flipped open to the drinks page, and I noticed that Lipton Brisk Sweet Tea got a green light. A green light, as in it's a healthy choice. And it had something like 44 grams of sugar in it. And I really just couldn't believe it. 44 grams of sugar. That's more than the recommended amount an adult should consume in an entire day. So this speaker is packing up and preparing to leave when Kristen, who's sitting way at the back of the ballroom, springs out of her chair. And chased him down and caught him and, you know, said, how can you possibly rank sweet tea as a healthy drink? And his answer to me was, there is no evidence linking sugar to chronic disease. And I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned. Kristen is thinking, this is a dental conference. Sugar causes tooth decay. That is a chronic disease, and it's also been linked to heart disease and diabetes. In my head, I'm thinking, this guy's nuts. So I looked back at him, I think, with a blank stare, and he just turned around and walked out the door. 
And I was just really shocked. It really kind of shook me up, and, and I didn't understand what was going on. So coming back from this dental conference, I just really couldn't let this go. Kristen comes home still astonished that a keynote speaker at an industry conference would say there is no link between sugar and chronic disease. And so when I came home, really the first thing I did was actually dig out my old textbooks. I got out my biochemistry textbook and looked at glycolysis again and like, did I miss something? But soon realized that there's probably much more to the story. So I started getting interested in the, the sugar industry. Kristen starts searching around on the internet, looking at the sugar industry's trade groups. Yeah, so I got pretty obsessed, I would have to say, with this, especially when I started to find real clues. So I actually cut off my cable TV subscription, no more TV. I was going to dedicate my free time outside of work to really look into this. Why was Kristen doing this? Well, at this point, she was working for a dental health care provider, but previously had been working as a dentist at clinics serving low-income populations. It was a tough gig. She'd see patient after patient with serious cavities or even missing teeth. Maybe this sugar mystery was part of the bigger issue. In the end, she made a major decision. Really, I wanted to dedicate myself to this. So, yes, I actually quit my job <laughs> to, to dig into this more. To crack this case, Kristen would go through a metamorphosis. She'd transform from dentist to detective and dive into the secretive realm of sugar, albeit her crime scenes were library storerooms and her smoking guns were manila folders. But her discoveries, well, they're incredible. She'd eventually uncover evidence revealing the canny strategies Big Sugar has used to protect its image and harness the power of public relations and influence the very food you eat. This episode, we step away from the lawsuits because to understand how these cases went, you have to really understand not only the people, but the industry the lawyers were taking on. I'm Celeste Headley, and from iHeartMedia, Imagine Audio, and the teams at Weekday Fun and Novel, this is Big Sugar, Episode 7, Bittersweet. By 2009, Kristen Kearns is a full-time, unemployed investigator on the trail of the sugar industry. She'd been scrutinizing the world of sugar for two years. At this point, her searches led her to a library in Colorado and to stumbling upon old records for this sugar beet company. I typed in sugar into the local library catalog, and I noticed uh, references to the Great Western Sugar Company. And this company had gone out of business in the 1970s, and they, for some reason, decided to donate some of their company records to local libraries. Kristen heads to the small archive room of the Colorado Library. It's a very kind of sterile environment. You have to put all your belongings in a, in a locker and only use a pencil. They're very worried about you damaging the documents. The boxes are all laid out. And I just picked the first one. And the first folder that I opened had confidential typed in all caps. And I think I had to like just take a moment and sit down and really 
take in that moment of, wow, you know, all this time of thinking there's something there and then actually finding that there was something there was, was a big moment for me. That was the moment where I sort of couldn't believe that I actually found this kind of hard evidence of the sugar industry's public relations campaigns that hadn't been brought to light yet. Okay, whoa, hold your horses. This discovery, well, it's major. And it dates back some 70 years ago and goes way beyond dentistry. It strikes without warning. Of 10 men, we can expect five to get it. But we can't say who or when or why. In the 1950s, America was under siege. The nation wasn't threatened by a foreign adversary, but by an indiscernible, stealthy enemy, heart disease. Rates of the condition were rising steeply, and it burst into the public consciousness when one Saturday afternoon in 1955, at the Cherry Hills Country Club golf course, President Dwight D. Eisenhower began complaining of indigestion around the ninth hole, which led to... The president was helped into a car in the early morning hours, rushed along this street to the Fitzsimmons Army Hospital, and placed in an oxygen tent. It turned out not to be from the hamburger he'd eaten earlier in the day, but a massive cardiac arrest. His illness revealed once again America's unpreparedness to deal adequately with such an emergency. Why were so many people suddenly having heart attacks? Even the president had been struck down. What was really going on? In the 1960s, evidence started to leak out suggesting there might be a link between heart disease and sugar consumption. When I say sugar, I don't mean the sugars we naturally find in whole foods, but those sugars which come from beets, cane, corn, and even honey. The thing that scientists and doctors were focused on were the molecules, fructose, sucrose, and dextrose, when they're added to our food in large quantities. And there was one man in particular sounding the alarm. John Yudkin. And Yudkin was of the opinion that sugar was a cause of coronary heart disease. This is BBC Television. You shouldn't eat sugar, full stop. But... If you insist on eating sugar, there are some sorts of brown sugar that do seem to be nutritionally superior. Dr. John Yudkin was a gifted researcher and hyper-focused on the area of public health. In fact, he ended up helping build the Department of Nutrition at Queen Elizabeth College in London. In 1972, John Yudkin dropped a bomb on the sugar industry. It was the biggest weapon in the academic arsenal, a well-researched book. It was called... Pure, white, and deadly. Which was describing the dangers, as he saw it, of sugar. Of course, he didn't mean the odd teaspoon of sugar that one might have in one's coffee a couple of times a day. He wasn't thinking of that at all. He was thinking of large quantities of sugar. This is Michael Yudkin. An emeritus professor of biochemistry at the University of Oxford. He's also... The son of John Yudkin whom I understand you're making a program about. Pure White and Deadly is a book which looked into questions of what happened when people from populations who had typically eaten relatively little sugar moved to populations where they were exposed to more sugar. 
For example, John Yadkin looked at studies about people from Yemen who moved to Israel and started eating loads more sugar. Decades later, what was going on with their health? More and more people were getting chronic diseases like heart disease and diabetes. Then he began doing his own experiments on animals and humans. He found that sugar consumption led to raised blood levels of triglycerides. That's a technical term for fat, which is considered a risk factor for heart disease. And then sugar also raised insulin levels, linking it to type 2 diabetes. These were early observations rather than concrete explanations, but it started him off thinking that there's something about sugar which is not only useless, but actually positively harmful in some way. So a bit more about John Yudkin, because he'll come to be central to the story. John Yudkin grew up in the East End of London. His family were very poor. His father died when he was six. He was one of five brothers, and he really had to make his own way. Through leapfrogging on scholarships, he ended up at the prestigious Cambridge University. It was not by any means common for poor children to finish up at Cambridge. He was very clever, very bright, and extremely hardworking. But also... He was a fun person. He had a great sense of humor. He wasn't a disciplinarian. I would go to a birthday party and he would say something like, of course, there'll be lots of cakes and biscuits at the birthday party, but I'd rather if you went easy on them. (laughs) Michael reminds me of his dad. Firstly, he too offered cookies when the production team met him. He's not militant about sugar either. And secondly, he and his father look quite similar. Black hair, glasses, and there's pretty much always at least a hint of a smile on his face, crinkling his eyes into half moons. Similarly, his dad... He was a cheerful person, which was lucky considering what happened later and considering the way he was treated later. John Yudkin's book, Pure, White, and Deadly, sparked a lot of interest when it was published, which was bad news for Sugar's reputation. Plus, at nearly the exact same time, there was a major FDA review looking into whether foods like sugar could be called generally recognized as safe in their dietary guidelines. The FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, is in charge of making sure the food sold to us here in the U.S. isn't harmful. If they took sugar off their safe list, it could spell the end of the industry. Imagine, every time you bought something with sugar in it, it would have a label warning you about the dangers of eating it. Basically, in the 1970s, the heat was on sugar, and they went into disaster control. And it all started with the Sugar Association. The Sugar Association is a trade association that's based in Washington, D.C., and they represent cane and beet sugar growers and producers on issues related to sugar and health. So any policy, any potential regulation that has anything to do with sugar and health, they are monitoring those activities and trying to influence them so that it doesn't impact sales of sugar. The Sugar Association has been funded by various companies over the years. These days, its biggest members include some names that might be familiar to you by now. Florida Crystals, and the Sugarcane Growers Cooperative of Florida. The public face of the Sugar Association is all well and good, 
But Kristen Kearns was more interested in what they weren't saying publicly. She's flipping through that manila folder in the Colorado Library Archives, and she stumbles on a pile of documents. Letters, memos, reports from around the 1970s when the industry was freaking out about the bad press, the FDA review, and books like Yudkin's. And they began to get concerned. The documents spelled out their game plan. They were watching John Yudkin in particular. In fact, in some of the earlier documents, the way they talked about it was that it was an anti-sugar infection and that they had to exterminate that infection. That was their mission. So it was how they put together their public relations campaigns and everything that they did to convince the public, convince policymakers, convince the media that sugar was safe for consumption back in the 1970s. They were thinking we could do a a public opinion poll. They thought maybe we could sponsor a symposium to kind of take down John Yudkin. And they started thinking about funding their own heart disease research. Between 1975 and 1980, the Sugar Association spent $655,000, about $3 million in today's dollars, on 17 studies designed, as the documents Kristen Found put it, to maintain research as a main prop of the industry's defense. So the association pulled out the cash bazooka, and who got showered in dough? Well, most of it apparently went to those scientists whose studies seemed explicitly designed to exonerate sugar. If you take a look at the internal documents Kristen found, in one example, a researcher wanted to know if sugar could boost serotonin and prove of therapeutic value, as in the relief of depression. Like, could scarfing down candy make you feel better when you're depressed? Look, if you've ever sought comfort from a pint of ice cream post a breakup, you can probably answer that one for yourself. These first documents were just the tip of the iceberg. Kristen kept digging and digging traveling around the country, going through more archives and more documents. Really, my whole focus became trying to uncover what these documents were about. And this was not something that I really had training in. So I just started reading through these documents. I paid for photocopies of them. I took them home. I had them in piles all over my dining room table trying to read through them and piece the story together of what was going on. Kristen has a kind of composed tenacity. When asked a question, she often laughs, gives a brief response, and then pauses before delivering a considered more articulate answer. So during this time, was she getting a bit uh, obsessive? Obsessive, yes. Um, (laughs) Once I had the clues that there was really some manipulation going on behind the scenes that just made me even more motivated to continue on. And it seemed like there really wasn't anybody else talking about this kind of material. And the more documents that I found, the more evidence there was to tell these various stories. And so it just kept, you know, pushing me on. It was was something that I just really wanted to get out into the world. More after the break. Kristen Kearns had stumbled on something major. 
Big Sugar's PR playbook. Step one, fund new research that might make sugar look better. Check. Step two, poo-poo your opponents. There was a quite clear campaign on the part of the sugar manufacturers to denigrate my father's work and poo-poo it and say, oh, there's nothing in it here. Yudkin just has a bee in his bonnet about it. And nobody really believes it except him and a couple of other deluded individuals whom he has seduced into this way of thinking. Being badmouthed might not sound that extreme, but in the scientific world, these were serious accusations. After Pure White and Deadly was published, the British Sugar Bureau, the UK version of the Sugar Association, sent a statement to newspapers, magazines, and radio saying, the book is considered to not only be unscientific in its approach, but to contain very little more than a number of emotional assertions based on Dr. Yudkin's own theory that sugar is the main cause of many diseases and should be banned. Another group, the World Sugar Research Organization, described it as science fiction. Ouch. We actually asked the World Sugar Research Organization about this, and a spokesperson gave us this statement. Professor Yedkin's views toward sugar were widely known and differed from the views of WSRO's director general at the time, nearly 45 years ago. The commentary by the director general at the time, who is now deceased, was considered by Professor Yedkin as an attack on his reputation, was retracted, and WSRO settled with Professor Yudkin within the laws of libel in the UK, with a payment offered towards Professor Yudkin's legal costs. But it wasn't just trade groups saying this kind of stuff. Here's Michael Yudkin again. There are examples of remarks that are made, particularly by an adversary of my father's. Someone whose voice the sugar industry found very useful. The, the adversary of my father, who was particularly virulent in this respect, was called Ansel Keys. I, Dr. Ansel Keys, am a physiologist. My specialty is diet and health. I have written several books on the subject, including the current bestseller, Eat Well and Stay Well. Back when the U.S. was first in the grip of a heart disease epidemic, there were two takes on the cause. In the red corner, John Yudkin said sugar. In the blue corner, Ansel Keys said fat. I am presently engaged in a major experiment involving the health and eating habits of some 10,000 individuals scattered throughout the world. We are collecting data on all types, from African tribesmen to American businessmen. I have already had considerable effect on the diet of millions of Americans. Dr. Ansel Keys was a pioneer in the field of nutrition. He'd helped create the K-rations, those meals that were carried into combat during World War II. In fact, the K in K-ration is for Keys. The now famous K-ration the completely streamlined meal. Originally designed for paratroops, K proved ideal for tank busters, commandos, and all isolated units. In the mid-20th century, Ansel Keys oversaw a landmark study that looked at populations around the world to get to the bottom of why Americans were dying of heart disease. He announced what he thought was the culprit for the scourge of heart disease, saturated fat. Well, it wasn't very long before it appeared that there was some connection between coronary heart disease and cholesterol in the blood. There was an important connection between the fats in the diet, particularly the kinds of fats in the diet, and uh, cholesterol in the blood. That's Ansel Keys speaking when he was super old. He lived to 100 in the end. 
Ansel Keys became probably the first nutritionist celebrity. Imagine the stern face of a physiologist on the cover of Time magazine. His promotion of the Mediterranean diet is still a worldwide phenomenon. And you know when you walk down the aisles of your supermarket and see low-fat this and low-fat that? Well, in part, you probably have Dr. Keyes to thank for that. You can watch videos of Dr. Keyes on YouTube. And while we all know comment sections don't always bring out the best in humanity, you might be surprised to scroll down and read what people have said about him. Plenty laud Dr. Keyes' work. But others say Keyes was a disgrace, or this guy should get a Nobel Prize for ruining the lives of billions, and even he should be charged posthumously with mass murder. Why? Well, you'll come to find out. So will the real Dr. Ansel Keys please stand up? Back in the 70s, when his feud with John Yudkin was at its peak, Dr. Ansel Keys made remarks that are really beyond the bounds, in my opinion, of what is proper to say in terms of scientists that you disagree with, like Yudkin's work has uh, no basis in fact, and although I have tried to um, counter it as best I can, the propaganda keeps on reverberating. (laughs) Attacks of that sort were largely successful in rendering my father something of a figure of fun, in rendering him somebody who could be regarded as eccentric and whose views could be written off. Keyes was chiming in alongside the sugar PR and trade associations to belittle John Yudkin's work. And this wasn't just a personal blow for John Yudkin, it impacted him professionally too. I think it certainly affected his career a lot. He would be invited to conferences and then at the last moment disinvited Um, One time he attended a conference and all the papers from that conference, including his, were to be published in a book. And then it suddenly discovered that his contribution to the conference was to be excluded from the book at the demand of the sugar people. His funding was put in jeopardy and finally cut There were lots and lots of ways in which he was made to suffer from here for his views. My father was a man who was not easily depressed. I must say that if I had been subjected to that kind of language, uh, I don't think I would have been as cheerful as my father was about it. He focused on his family, often taking his grandchildren out to things like the circus or the theater. John Yudkin died in 1995. According to Michael, his greatest fear wasn't that his work had been erased, but what that could mean for people's health. That was very, very hard for him when he saw this sort of disappearing before his eyes. That was extremely difficult. Alongside attacking people like Yudkin, the sugar industry also went a step further. In 1975, an expert committee, led by those supposedly at the cutting edge of public health research, published a literature review called Sugar in the Diet of Man. It critiqued evidence that linked sugar to chronic disease. 
and it was sent all over the country, 25,000 copies to influential people, including reporters and policymakers, along with a press release headlined, Scientists Dispel Sugar Fears. The documents Kristen found reveal this series was funded by the sugar industry, but the report at the time didn't say that. And so when this Sugar in the Diet of Man series came out, it became this scientific evidence that the sugar industry could point to that was disconnected from their funding, disconnected from any of their fingerprints, and say, look at all of these prominent scientists who are claiming that there is no link between sugar and chronic disease. All this fed into that FDA report questioning the safety of sugar. And so when you read the report itself, you can see that there is evidence linking sugar to diabetes, for example. But then the report goes on to say, here are some other studies that show that there is no link between sugar and diabetes. And those studies happened to be several that had been sponsored by the sugar industry. In the end, the FDA concluded... It basically said that there was no link between sugar and heart disease and diabetes and obesity. It did acknowledge a link between sugar and tooth decay. So they actually succeeded in influencing the Food and Drug Administration. Let me spell it out here. According to the documents Kristen found, the sugar industry paid scientists to conduct studies that made sugar look good, attacked people who said sugar could be unhealthy, then produced a massive report, basically saying, look at all this evidence, sugar isn't linked to these chronic diseases. Then the government relied on that report when making their recommendations about the very things you should eat. No one is saying that you shouldn't eat sugar at all, but there was no limit, no cap, no suggestion of how much you could healthily consume or the potential consequences of eating too much. I think the, the president of the Sugar Association at the time called it their scientific Bible. They could use that FDA report to counter any other government effort to try to limit sugar consumption in various ways. Like here's a clip from a 1980s documentary made by the Florida Sugarcane League, the Trade Association of Florida Sugar Growers and Processors. Currently, there are many voices reaching the public ear who make accusations against sugar as a food, such as that sugar is an important cause of coronary heart disease. Because of public concern, the Food and Drug Administration in recent years had a group of independent scientists review the world's literature dealing with sugar. The conclusion was reached that other than one of the contributing factors to tooth decay there is no evidence indicating that the average amount of sugar consumed by the American public in any way constitutes a health hazard. That's not a spokesman for the sugar industry speaking. That's the founder of the nutrition department at Harvard University's School of Public Health. Kristen found that the International Sugar Research Foundation funded 30 studies in Stair's department between 1952 and 1956. He also led the report, Sugar in the Diet of Man. Let me just reiterate, this is a Harvard professor working in public health, also being paid by the sugar industry, saying sugar is not harmful. In conclusion, 
Sugar is an important part of the diet. It's a source of energy, it's a safe food, it tastes good and makes other foods taste good. And remember that eating is one of the pleasures of life. Off the back of all this, the Sugar Association made ads for newspapers and magazines exclaiming, sugar is safe. The ad said, quote, there is no substantiated scientific evidence indicating that sugar causes diabetes, heart disease, or any other malady, end quote. So sit back, take a bite of your Oreo, sip on your Coca-Cola, and enjoy the blissful pleasures of corporate influence in America. The research, the literature reviews, the attacks on the opponents, the media campaigns, the success with the FDA report. All of this led to a big moment for the Sugar Association. The Silver Anvil Award was really a big win for the Sugar Association. It's given out by the Public Relations Society of America, and it's like winning an Oscar if you're in the public relations world. Christian uncovered an image of them accepting the award— In the sepia-stained photo, three men smile, clutching the trophy. They had faced a barrage of criticism. And who won? They did. More after the break. With the image of sugar as being safer than fat firmly embedded in the public imagination, the sugar companies were free to continue pushing the sweet stuff. And inevitably, people ate more and more of it. 200 years ago, we ate an average of 13 pounds of sugar a year. These days in the U.S., that figure is more like 150 pounds. That means in a month's time, we get through what we used to eat in a whole year. Now, heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. Every 36 seconds, someone dies from a cardiovascular condition. And about 1 in 10 of us live with diabetes. A decisive link between sugar and these diseases is still debated. But what can be definitively said is that eating a lot of sugar increases the possibility of being overweight, which is a risk factor for type 2 diabetes, some cancers, and heart disease. Saturated fat certainly plays its role as well. This all might seem kind of distant, literature reviews, FDA reports, nutrition studies, but it affects you and one of the most personal things in your life, what you eat. Products that were high in sugar could be marketed as healthy. It was all about low fat. I have very little news. This new Best Foods low-fat mayonnaise dressing has very little fat. So if a product was low in fat but high in sugar, according to the U.S. government, it could be marketed as a healthy product because there was no limit set on how much sugar was too much. The low-fat market hit the accelerator. Nobody does fat-free indulgence like Snackwell's. New Snackwell's chocolate truffle cookies. So good, can we ever make enough? Even sugar itself could be marketed as a way to reduce your weight. While you're holding down your weight, only 18 calories per teaspoon of Domino. Pure cane sugar. There's a simple parallel to be drawn here to another industry that spent years trying to influence science and get the public hooked on its product. The sugar industry has some interesting connections to the tobacco industry. So first, they actually have some of the same players 
one really interesting thing I found was that the first scientific director for the Sugar Research Foundation that was the original name of the Sugar Association went on to work for the tobacco industry. He sent the tobacco companies a letter telling them about all the great work he had done for the sugar industry and exonerating sugar from being linked to obesity, heart disease, B vitamin problems, tooth decay, and said that the problems of the cigarette companies were so similar to what the sugar industry had gone through that he thought he could be of great service to the tobacco companies. And indeed, they hired him, and he became the assistant scientific director of the tobacco industry research committee for at least a decade The sugar industry might have been, you know, up to no good even before the tobacco industry. So in this case, it looks like the tobacco industry actually might have learned from what the sugar industry was doing. We asked the Sugar Association about these allegations, that they funded research explicitly designed to exonerate sugar as a cause of chronic disease, that their funding of such research was concealed, and that they attacked opponents of sugar they sent us a statement, which you can read in full in the episode notes. But in part, they told us, the Sugar Association's past and ongoing support of nutrition research was and is undertaken in good faith in pursuit of science-based nutrition knowledge and sound public policy decisions that result in better public health outcomes. While standards for peer-reviewed published research and nutrition research of all kinds have changed over the decades, The sugar industry's financial support of past academic nutrition research discussed in your podcast should have been disclosed. They also added, It is important to recognize that despite decades of inquiry on the topic of sugar and health and tens of thousands of studies, scientific consensus still suggests that added sugars are not the cause of obesity or heart disease. Best summed up by the FDA in 2016 when it wrote, U.S. consensus reports do not support a cause-and-effect relationship between added sugars consumption and the risk of obesity and heart disease. Listen, it's a long statement with a lot of words in it. It's clear the Sugar Association acknowledges that they weren't as transparent as they should have been, and that's an important point. I will only note that rising to the standard of cause-and-effect in any kind of public health issue is a very high bar indeed. Kristen has faced criticism for her work, too. Some have even gone as far as calling her a conspiracy theorist. Kristen, an assistant professor at the University of California. It's interesting when people might think about me as a conspiracy theorist. Maybe it actually was a conspiracy, you know, behind the scenes. It's something that uh, we didn't know about before. As the material is uncovered, you can see exactly what the sugar industry has been up to. Sugar and tobacco are are quite different. You don't ever want to smoke. But with sugar, you know, there is some room for some sugar in your diet. But the question is, how much is too much? And that's the question that the sugar industry hasn't wanted us to answer. But wait, there's more. The industry hasn't let up even in recent years, on its efforts to keep us eating loads of sugar. Pekka Pushka is known as the man who made Finland healthier. Can you see me? Can you hear me? Okay, good. He's a medical doctor, and he too saw the rise of heart disease in the 20th century and knew something had to be done about it. 
In the early 70s, Finland had the highest mortality of heart disease in the world, and that led me to this field uh, because it was quite a national emergency. We have to do something. Pekka is a fan of international collaboration, a big fan. Some people wear shirts that are emblazoned with their favorite band or some place they've been as a tourist. Pekka, he wears the official UN gift shop button-down. I bought this uh, some years ago at the U.S. headquarters in New York. I like this. <laughs> he literally wears his love for global cooperation on his sleeve. So Pekka went on to have some major roles in international public health, including at the WHO, the World Health Organization. He was the director for non-communicable disease prevention and health promotion. Basically, he was tasked with looking into health issues like heart disease for the Global Health Group. Back in the early 2000s, he was getting ready to publish a report for the WHO. We wanted to have a very solid scientific report, so we appointed an expert group of something like 30 people, experts from different countries. The scientists made a strong, unanimous conclusion in the draft report. Because of health reasons, sugar intake should not be more than 10% of energy. This was not something the industry wanted to hear. In other words, they recommended that no more than 10% of our calories should come from sugar. Then suddenly, quite suddenly actually, the sugar industry really started this very heavy attack and saying that it is not scientific, it should not be published. Pekka says that sugar lobbyists started contacting him. It was very strong pressure against publishing this report. And there's one memory that sticks out. One particular occasion that is still very strongly in my mind when a very powerful, very important uh, Coca-Cola lobbyist came to my office and said, Pekka, about this work, are you sure you know what you are doing? Because uh, you are now dealing with big boys, pharmaceutical industry, small boys. Now you are messing up with the big boys. Are you sure you know what you are doing? He also said that if you act properly, we have millions to work with you people. Meaning they have a lot of money to spend to give to the WHO for joint projects. We asked Coca-Cola to respond to the claim that they lobbied the WHO after this 10% recommendation, but we got no reply. Back when this was all happening, Pekka refused to back down. He said there was solid evidence for the recommendation and the report would be published regardless of the pressure. We have to be patient and just push, push and push. His colleagues joke that he puts the push in Pekka Pushka. Somebody said, OK, now we know why your name is Pushka. But the big sugar boys went a step further. The sugar industry launched a massive campaign to threaten the WHO coming from the U.S. saying that we would pull our funding from the WHO if they continued on with that recommendation. And the sugar industry was able to recruit two U.S. senators, as well as our Secretary of Health and Human Services at the time, to write, it was like a 26-page letter claiming that the evidence the WHO had used did not meet the standards of the U.S. government. The letter from the Sugar Association threatened the WHO, saying they're demanding that Congress end its funding unless the WHO scrapped the guidelines. You know, we did with the letter. We leaked it to The Guardian. The Guardian published parts of the leaked letter, 
and the big sugar tactic backfired. Pekka thinks all the resistance from the lobbyists and politicians actually drew attention to the report and the 10% recommendation. After all this lobbying, there was huge international interest in this report. The senator should have realized how stupid it was of them. Absolutely stupid. So the sugar industry has a lot of support to try to influence even international organizations to try to soften the message about sugar and chronic disease. It's pretty astounding, their power. Oh, and by the way, a last note on the John Yudkin-Ansel Keys feud. Keys certainly came out on top in the 70s, but perhaps not now, helped in part by something else Kristen found. I discovered a brochure on the Sugar Research Foundation just in this random publication online, and it was listing the first research projects that SRF funded in the early 1940s, and Ansel Keys happened to be the very first researcher that they gave money to. They gave him, at the time, about $12,000 per year for a three-year project which would be the equivalent of about $100,000 per year today. So that's pretty significant. Probably not on the explicit condition that he undermined John Yudkin's work, but with a wink probably said, well, you know, we're very interested in your work. We notice that your work has the effect of undermining John Yudkin, and um, we're happy to fund you. Hence the accusation that by helping attack Yudkin and not warning people about the potential impacts of sugar, Ansel Keys has cost lives. That's what those YouTube comments were suggesting anyway. Many would say that cozy relationships with industry are the norm and have no impact on a scientist's impartiality. These funds were granted back in the 1940s, well before the feud was really underway. Yudkin also took funding from industry giants such as Heinz, Nestle, and the National Dairy Council, but his results, as he writes in the acknowledgments to Pure, White, and Deadly, were often not at all in their interests. Fortunately for Yudkin, discoveries like Kristen's, coupled with new research, began to turn the tide of opinion around his work. And actually, thanks to a viral video, the book Pure, White, and Deadly has gone gangbusters— It's become a hit and been republished and translated into a bunch of languages, 40 years after its original publication. So it's undergone something of a rebirth, uh, that book. Michael is enjoying seeing how his dad's work has gone through a sort of renaissance. Of course, it's always nice to see one's own father uh, welcomed again. So it was fun for me. And it is extraordinary. I I don't know a case like it, actually. And by the way, the World Health Organization did end up making that 10% recommendation, and now labels on food list a line for added sugar, while sugar consumption in the U.S. has gone down since the 1990s. With this turn of events these days, Michael imagines his dad's response. He was not the kind of man to say, I told you so. He was a man to, to say, oh, well, something good has happened. Let's rejoice. Kristen now feels like the case is closed on that question she asked all those years ago at the conference. Why is Lipton Brisk Tea considered healthy? 
and this whole investigation has shifted the way she looks at the world. I'm very cynical. <laughs> How to say that? Uh, it's not just one or two industries. There are many out there who make products that are harmful, and they all engage in some form of public relations to try to cover up the connections to try to delay regulation, to try and convince us that there's no problem. And from all this research and experience, she has advice for anyone taking on big sugar. People definitely don't realize how sophisticated the sugar industry is uh, and the resources that they have at their disposal and the lengths that they would go to to protect their industry. The sugar industry is always on guard, looking for threats. They're always scanning for threats. They never stop. And that's what you'll hear next week, just how far the sugar industry will go. There's all kinds of corruption. There's the kind you can prosecute, and there's the kind that there are no penalties for. If you can't take their money, drink their liquor, and vote against them, you shouldn't be in this business. <laughs> and how much power they have, that they have a line directly to the Oval Office. If you can get the President of the United States on the phone while he is breaking up with his girlfriend, you've got a lot of clout. That's next time on Big Sugar. Big Sugar is produced by Imagine Audio, Weekday Fun Productions, and Novel for iHeartMedia. The series is hosted by me, Celeste Headley. Big Sugar is produced by Jeff Eisenman at Weekday Fun Productions. It's executive produced by Kara Welker, Nathan Clokey, and Marie Brenner. Story editor and executive producer is Joe Wheeler. The researcher is Nadia Meri. Production management from Cherie Houston, Frankie Taylor, and Charlotte Wolfe. Our fact-checker is Sona Avakian. Field reporting by Amber Amorji. Sound design and mixing by Eli Block, Naomi Clark, and Daniel Kempson. Original music composed by Troy McCubbin at Alloy Tracks. Additional music by Nicholas Alexander. Special thanks to Alec Wilkinson, author of the book Big Sugar, and Stephanie Black, director of the documentary H2 Worker. Big Sugar is based on the Vanity Fair article In the Kingdom of Big Sugar by Marie Brenner. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.